Welcome, friends, to another episode of Footsteps of the Messiah. We're going to jump right in here and get into the Haftarah for Parashat Vayetze. So Parashat Vayetze is actually still, we're still in the book of Genesis, as I'm sure you know. And let me get that for you. The We just read the Parashat. Just a second. Uh, usually I've been covering the Haftarah, but I want to go ahead and give you the reference for the parasha from that the prophets are connected to. So give me just a second. Parasha by say means he went out, and the parasha. It means Parsha, of course, you know by now. It means uh, portion for the week. So Parsha Vayetse is from uh, Genesis 28, verse 10, and it goes all the way through Genesis 32, 3. So we'll jump right in uh, with the bracha, with the blessing. Baruch Adonai, Lehenu Melech HaOlam. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by his commandments and commands us regarding the engagement of Torah study. All right. So, Vayat saying Haftarah in a half shell. So, I'm sorry, in a nutshell. <laughs> Let's go cover the summary. So, Hoshea 11, verse 7 through 12, 14, is the portion from the prophets that matches with Parashat. Uh, so this week's Haftarah mentions Jacob's flight from home to the field of Aram, an episode that is recounted in this week's Torah reading. The Haftarah begins with the prophet Hoshea's rebuke of the Jewish people for forsaking God. Nevertheless, Hoshea assures the people that God will not abandon them. How can I give you Ephraim and deliver you to the hands of the nations? I will not act with my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. The prophet discusses the misdeeds of the northern kingdom of Israel and the future degeneration, not generation, but degeneration of the kingdom of Yehuda. He contrasts their behavior to that of their forefather, Yaakov, who was faithful to God and prevailed against enemies, both human and angelic. Excuse me. The Haftarah also makes mention of the ingathering of the exiles from the Galut, from the Gola, the the diaspora, the literal place of exile, which will occur during the final redemption. They will hasten like a bird from Egypt and like a dove from the land of Assyria, and I will place them in their houses, says the Lord. Now, here's something interesting I noticed in the Hebrew this week. So let me get my humash. All right, so... Uh, we're going to take a look at this. Actually, you know what? We could take a look at it right here on screen. But I do want to read from this. This, if you're watching on video, is the book I'm always uh, referring to, the Etz Chaim Torah and Commentary. Mine's a little bit beat up, uh, gets used a lot. But this is a beautiful book. I think it runs about $85. And it is uh, available uh, for, for you to you know own yourself. You'll see it in some conservative synagogues. Uh, it's pretty pretty popular version. Okay, so in that verse about the the birds, it refers to Yonah, which is a dove, and it refers to 
another bird coming from Egypt. So let's check this out together. Let me see if I can find it. What verse was that? That was, uh, it doesn't reference it. I think it's near the end. Give me just a second here. Let's see. I think it's at the very end of the Haftarah portion. Okay. And Jacob fled to the land of the field of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, which is, you know, same person, two different names, but he becomes Israel. And let's see here. Frame, Trafficker. We should probably just read it. Okay, so let's just start from, oh, here it is. Hoshea chapter 11, 11, verse 11. Okay. Yechel du ketzipor, ketzipor mimitzrayim, uchyona me'eretz ashur, v'choshavtim al batehem ne'um Adonai. Ne'um Adonai is thus says the Lord, uh, or says the Lord. So, the, the word here, tzipur mimitzrayim, means uh, the, the bird called the tzipur. I guess it's a generic bird. I'm not sure. But who was named tzipur in the book of Exodus that was connected with Egypt? Moshe's wife, tzipurah. She was ladybird. That was her name. I think here, because she was married to Moshe, it's just my opinion. There's no Rashi commentary. I did not look up any other commentary on this. So I would have to do that, which I wasn't uh, completely prepared to do. But this idea came to mind. Could Sipor mean Mitzrayim? Like Sipora from Mitzrayim and like Yonah me'elet Ashur. Where did Yonah, Jonah, the prophet go? Where was he supposed to go? He was supposed to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was in Assyria. It was the capital of Assyria. So like the, the wife of the man who represented the Torah coming out of Mitzrayim, and like Yonah, the prophet who went to a Gentile nation and capital and drew them out from the land of Assyria, and also who Israel, the 10 northern tribes eventually were scattered among, okay? He's calling, they shall hasten like the wife of the Torah, because Moshe is symbolic of the Torah, and like the prophet who, car who carried the burden and a message from the land of Assyria. So I think there's a lot here that would bear further study. But I, I think it's, it's interesting that there are two groups of people because you see this in scripture where there are two groups. You see how Judah and Benjamin are basically Judah, the southern kingdom that stayed longer and took care of the temple. And then you have the 10 northern kingdoms that basically never came back, especially in their fullness. And we still don't know, uh, you know, who's from those lost 10 tribes. Uh, but, you know, it's not lost. It's, they're just hidden for now. Okay. So anyway, back to some commentary. All right. So, uh, all right. I'm going to read from a source I haven't read from uh, so far this year. So this is really interesting. This is from 
uh, OU Torah, and I believe OU is the Orthodox Union. Uh, they're actually, we went to the Orthodox Union, I believe, um, in Jerusalem for Shavuot, 5782, so just last, uh, this past summer. Uh, really neat place. Uh, so anyway, there's a metaphor of faithfulness here. So this is written by Rabbi Dr. Gidon Rothstein. The challenge of speaking meaningfully, articulately intelligent, and intelligibly about God, the ineffable and completely other, meaning he's other, we're separate, looms large before each prophet. One central tool in that task, metaphor, seeks to shed useful light on our relationship with God, itself a metaphor, by aligning it with other ones that we have. This search for the familiar as a way to assimilate new experiences shows itself in everyday life. People facing the entirely new geographically, physically, or culturally will often say, this is just like this, or this is so different from that. We comprehend the new by comparing and contrasting it, those mainstays of examination questions, to what we already know well. In our Haftarah, the metaphor is marriage, especially the faithfulness of partners in a good one from the book of Hoshea. The betrayal of spouses who cheat and the ready, God forbid, and the readiness of some spouses to take a wayward partner back, God forbid, that wouldn't be necessary, even after great damage to the relationship. The opening which connects us to the Torah reading has Hoshea invoking Yaakov's service to earn Rachel as Rachel as a parallel to God's having brought the Jews out of Egypt with a prophet. Well, technically, it wasn't just the Jews, it was all of Israel. So having brought Israel out of Egypt with a prophet and watching over them with one, just as Yaakov worked resolutely toward his goal, never abandoning it in the face of various challenges, God metaphorically works resolutely on the relationship with us. Continuous striving is one way to be faithful to a goal, but the Haftarah implies and suggests others as well. Jacob ran away from Esau to get to Haran a retreat strategic and appropriate for the circumstances. Leaving the scene, Yaakov's actions teach us, is sometimes the only way to be able to move forward towards a goal. Just as continue, a continuous forward motion is sometimes impossible, God's punishment, which might seem a disruption of our relationship, does not even have to mean a break in continuous divine involvement. When Ephraim incurs retribution here, God speaks of being like various animals a lion, a bear, and attacking and punishing them. The punishment hurts, but there is the solace of God's deep involvement in administering it. So how do we get from punishment to involvement? The Haftarah records Hoshia's attempt to convince the people to return to a more positive version of that deep involvement. Ephraim, probably the northern kingdom, was at one point highly faithful. The traditional reading of the text sees Jeroboam, Jeroboam, the king, as having been given the northern kingdom for criticizing Shlomo, King Shlomo's sleeping late on the day of the dedication of the temple. The Midrash, I don't think that's in the Tanakh that he criticizes him for sleeping late. Uh, the Midrash portrays God as either rewarding him for his zealousness or challenging him to outperform Shlomo, King Solomon. Either way, he failed. The lure of power enticing him into establishing a competing worship to the one at the temple. There is a book which makes a famous assertion that love never means having to say you're sorry. 
while I think generally the opposite is true, because you love someone, you should always be ready to apologize and make things right and ask for forgiveness. I added that. That was my commentary. It is precisely those we love most to whom we ought to be apologizing most fully and carefully. The statement properly emphasizes that love cannot hang on the question of an apology. Love can be broken, but not by something so small as failure to apologize. Apologies can, however, improve a relationship, taking it to whatever its next level is supposed to be. With God, the equivalent of saying sorry is repentance. So the prophet's call for repentance fits well here. In a relationship less with permanence, but plagued by one's partner's inability or refusal to shoulder responsibilities, the only barrier to improvement is that part, that partner's willingness to acknowledge error and rededicate him or fulfill him herself to fulfilling the promise inherent in the relationship. As Yaakov contributed permanence and effort to perfect his relationship with Rachel, we are being called to do so with God, who already reciprocates. Wow, that's pretty deep. Okay, so Maimonides' read of famous verses, 13.8. Hoshea 13.8 refers to God punishing us by acting towards us as a bear bereaved of her cub. A vote 5-7 defines seven qualities of a person with poorly formed character. In his commentary there, Maimonides notes that few people completely lack intellectual and character qualities, but anyone so bereft of humanity will be similar to a rampaging animal and can be referred to that way. This, refer, this raises the possibility that Maimonides could have interpreted our verse as meaning that God will punish us by forcing us to grapple with such people a terrible task and burden. The most famous verse in the Haftarah 14.2, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, emphasizes the power of repentance to fully rejuvenate or even improve a relationship with the Lord. Maimonides' Laws of Repentance 7, verse 6, echoes these messages when he speaks of how close repentance brings the penitent to God. 14.4 tells us that in the future, we will no longer say God to the work of our hands. Maimonides in Laws of Repentance 2.2 understands this to mean that we will no longer need to falsely invoke God to support our actions, since God will truly know our positive intentions. The final verse of the Haftarah, which Maimonides does not cite, challenges us with its claim that the ways of God are productive for the righteous and destructive for sinners. We tend to assume that God, that good is always good, but the verse sees the Lord's ways as more malleable. Baba Batra 89b tells of Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai struggling with whether to publicize a certain halakhic fact for fear that it might teach evildoers how to get away with their evil. He finally announces the information anyway, citing our verse. In his view, then, Hoshea was speaking how some positive truths can be warped by evildoers. Horayot 10b assumes the verse is referring to how motive affects an act. Positive motives can make it a meritorious one, and negative ones can make it sinful. The sources share a conviction that some actions are not inherently good or bad, but depend on the use to which they are put. As a close to the book of Hoshea and of our Haftarah, it reminds us soberingly 
that our internal righteousness necessarily affects our external experience of religion and the impact it has on us. In summary, Hoshea uses the metaphor of marriage and faithfulness to bemoan Israel's betrayals of God. God, on the other hand, is portrayed as punishing, but continually involved. The implication seems to be that we are being warned of punishment. The implication seems to be that we are being warned of punishment, are called and are called on to match Jacob's faithfulness to Rachel. Really beautiful art. All right, so let's take a look at a couple of other commentaries and see if we can peel back the layers of this Haftarah. So, okay, so we're going to check out the Haftarah companion that I usually like to go to. It's such a great source for ideas and uh, looking at deeper understanding. So this is by Rabbi Mendel Dubov, and this is from the Chabad organization. So this is called Haftarah Companion for Bayat And you can also watch it in video form on their website, but I'm just going to read from his commentary. So, Hoshea was one of the prophets who lived at the time of the looming destruction of the northern state of Israel, which comprised 10 of the 12 tribes. He refers to the state as Ephraim for its first ruler, Yeroboam ben Nebat was from that tribe. Okay, sorry, I needed to shut off some background. So, Hoshea was the first of four prophets who warned of the eventual exile in similar terms, the others being Isaiah, Amos, and Micah, Hanevim, the prophets. The beginning of the Haftarah seems to be directed to the people as a whole, although the people were very hesitant about mending their ways. God would, still would not, nay, could not totally destroy them. After their long exile, God would gather them in and return them to their land. The people of Israel have been spending their lives in vanity, pursuing emptiness, and not in the most scrupulous of ways. If catastrophe would befall them, it could have been caused only by their actions. Keep loving kindness and justice, begs Hoshea, and hope to your God always. Uh, it doesn't refer to what verse that is, so I apologize. It's in the 14 chapters of Hoshea somewhere. Oh, uh, you know what? Let's find it. Uh, keep loving kindness and justice and hope to your God always. Keep loving kindness and justice and hope to your God always. All right, let's see where that is. Uh, okay, Hoshea 12, 6. Okay, so yeah, that's right at the beginning. No, right at the middle of the parasha. Let's see, that's 11, and all right. So in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually verse 7. Uh, verse 6 says, And the Lord is the God of hosts. The Lord is his name. And the Lord is the God of hosts, and the Lord is his name. Uh, and you shall return by your God, keeping love and kindness and justice and hope to your God always. All right. Thank you, Bible Hub. Uh, it's a good site. If you need a site to refer to, Bible Gateway and Bible Hub are both 
great for searching out uh, scripture if you don't have a concordance handy and want to use an online concordance or and Bible. So uh, let's see, where were we? The prophet reminds the people of their history. The event in this week's parsha. Yaakov contended with his wicked brother Esau and overcame him. Moreover, he fought with an angel and was victorious, the angel in turn pleading with Yaakov to let it be. Prior to these events, Yaakov arrived penniless at the home of his uncle Laban and had to work to marry his wives. He then, however, amassed great wealth when God caused the turn of events to be in his favor. If this was the history of their ancestor, the Jews or Israel could take heed and cast their lot with God and not with the emptiness of affluence, or the nations they allied with. The two Jerusalems. Okay, so we see this actually what I'm about to read in the book of Galatians. And let's see if I can get to that chapter. I believe it is in Galatians. Ah, need the whole chapter. Uh, so sorry, so sorry. Okay, well, anyway, in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about something similar. He talks about uh, the two Jerusalems. Let's see how I can go fast. Okay. Uh, I believe it's Galatians 4. Okay, Galatians. Okay, so yeah, it is Galatians 4, and we'll come back to that in a moment, possibly. Okay, so um, this rabbi, who is not a believer that I know of in Yeshua, talks about the two Jerusalems. In your midst is the Holy One, and I will not enter a city. That's a quote from, I doesn't say, but I believe it's from uh, the Haftarah. The simple meaning of this verse is understood by the commentaries is that God is committing here not to have his presence rest in any other place than you shall I. In this sense, he will not enter another city. So once he has promised to rest in the midst of the people of Israel, but loosely read, this verse is difficult to understand. Why would God not enter the city if he is in the midst of the people? The Talmud offers a more esoteric understanding. Rab Nachman said to Rabbi Yitzchak, what is the meaning of the scriptural verse? In your midst is a holy one, and I will not enter a city. Surely it cannot be that, because the holy one is in your midst, he shall not come into the city. He replied, thus said Rabbi Yochanan, the holy one, blessed be he, said, I will not enter the heavenly Yerushalayim until I can enter the earthly Yerushalayim. Is there then a heavenly Yerushalayim? Yes, for it is written, the built-up Yerushalayim is like a city joined together within itself. Now that's from Psalms 122, Psalm 122, verse 3, which is read every day in the morning prayer service, I believe. Rabbi Yochanan adduces from this verse. Okay, well, I don't know what adduces means. A-D-D-U-C-E-S. So let me look it up for us. Okay, adduces means... Uh, Sight to sight as evidence. All right. Vocabulary and Haftarah. Exciting day, friends. All right. So uh, let's see. Deuces. Uh, sorry, I lost my place. Okay. Uh, from this verse in Psalms that Yerushalayim has a companion or prototype in heaven with which it is, quote, joined together. 
And that's a direct quote from Psalm 122, joined together. Uh, the verse in Hoshea is thus taken to mean there is a holy city in your midst, referring to the earthly Yerushalayim, and I, God, will not enter the city, the heavenly Yerushalayim, until I enter the earthly one. What emerges then from the Talmudic explanation to this verse is truly inspiring. As of this moment, God's presence has been lifted from Yerushalayim. We are bereft of the temple and all that comes along with it, and a state of galut, exile, prevails. Now, we might have thought that while this is true in this holy physical realm, the reality in a higher godly plane is different. Maybe there is a pl place where everything is just fine. What Hoshea is conveying in the name of God is that this is not the case. As long as God has not introduced line, there is no place below. There is no place, sublime as it may be, that benefits from God's full and open presence. God, as it were, puts himself in exile, not allowing himself to full yet any full comfort in any place as long as his children below have not found the same. In the words of our sages, the divine presence resides among Israel, as it were, in all the misery of their exile. And when the Jews are redeemed from their exile, God writes an expression of redemption for himself to say that he himself returns along with Israel's exiles. There is an additional dimension to the two Jerusalems that can be found in the commentary of Rashba to this Talmudic passage. There is a great concept to be found in this passage, says Rashba. One should be aware that the city of Yerushalayim, the Temple Mount, and the Holy Temple are all physical pictures, in quotes, of very lofty and spiritual ideas, symbols. The entire land of Israel is also included in this, for which reason it is called the land of the living and the inheritance of God. It is for this reason that many commandments are dependent on residing in the land of Israel. And you can see this. Uh, this is a commentary Hakotev to Ein Yaakov um, in Tractate Ta'anit from either the Mishnah or the Talmud. Rashba further explains that this is what the Torah alludes to when God tells Moshe concerning the construction of the tabernacle. That's the Mishkan in Hebrew. Now, now see and make according to their pattern. Now this is straight out of the Torah. Now see and make according to their pattern, which you are shown on the mountain. Moshe was shown the concept of the tabernacle on high and was to translate it into a physical vessel below. Rashba then uses this concept to explain another Talmudic passage. Whoever lives in the land of Israel may be considered to have a God, but whoever lives outside the land may be regarded as one who has no God. Living in the land of Israel is living in a godly space. Every part of it is live and linked to godliness. All right, so the details of how the various parts of the temple, Jerusalem, and the land of Israel reflect godly ideas are explained at length in Kabbalah and Hasidut. Now, Hasidut, I'll just define for you. So Kabbalah literally means that which is received. If you go to Israel today and you say, uh, you know, Kabbalah, uh, please let me have a, a receipt, like a paper receipt for something you purchased. And it means the received tradition in this context. So it's what Abraham was given to understand the entire Torah. 
So the body of Jewish teachings at which the central text is the Zohar. So it's really the deeper meanings and understandings and interpretations, including uh, rearranging words, understanding gematria, um, hidden meanings and uh, uh, acronyms. So let, you know, words that stand for other things like in the Torah portion uh, for, for next week, we're going to see that I, um, Jacob tells Esau, Garti, uh, I lived with Lavan. Well, Garti is an anagram for Taryag, which is a special word in Judaism that doesn't mean anything uh, specifically, it is an acronym for the 613 mitzvot because it's gematria, uh, tav, resh, gimel, yod, uh, tav, resh, yud, gimel, add up to 613. So it's as if he's saying, you know, an interpreter, uh, uh, Kabbalistic uh, student might say that it's interpreting that he's, the hidden meaning is, he lived with Levan and had to observe or understand all the 613 commandments because he was in such a precarious spiritual place. Anyway, uh, that's Kabbalah in a nutshell. Hasidut is the movement within Judaism founded by the Baal Shem Tov, who lived from 1698 to 1760 and stresses service of God through the mystical, in addition to the legalistic dimension of Judaism, the power of joy, love of God, and one's fellow emotional involvement in prayer, finding godliness in every aspect of one's existence, and the elevation of the material universe. It also applies to the teachings and philosophy of this movement. All right. And chasidut means merciful in a way. It comes from the root chesed, which means mercy. So what is certain is that living or even visiting the Holy Land and the Holy City must come along with a strong cognizance of being in the king's palace and acting accordingly. The land of investment. So you are like a trader with false scales in his hand who loves to defraud. Not a glowing compliment. Hoshia, that's directly from the Haftarah. Hoshia admonishes the people for their love of money at the experience of spiritual integrity. Many of the commentaries, however, pick up on Hebrew word, where a Hebrew word used here for trader, kana'an. The conventional word for a trader or merchant is sochev, um, which in modern Hebrew can mean like to lease, uh, lease a property to somebody. Uh, this rare usage of the word kana'an here sheds light on where we do find this word used frequently as the name for the land of Israel, Canaan in English, but Canaan in Hebrew, uh, spelled Kaf Nun Ein Nun, final Nun. Uh, sorry, Kaf Nun Ein Nun Sophie, final Nun. Okay, so just four left, not five. In the entire five books of Moshe, we find that the land of our forefathers and the one promise to the Jewish people is called Eretz Canaan, the land of Canaan. It is only in the ensuing books of the prophets that the land gets the name Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. This is strange indeed, as Canaan was only one of the seven nations that inhabited the land prior to, the, to Israel entering it. Moreover, Canaan as an individual was not a very worthy person at all. We encounter him in the Torah as being disrespectful to his grandfather Noah, which earned him a curse for all generations. Why would the Torah use his name 
out of all possible names for the Holy Land. And by the way, that reference to Noah was in Bereshit 9.22. So the answer given in Hasidic thought directs our attention to this verse in the Haftarah. Kana'an also means a merchant on an esoteric level. It is the spiritual idea of trade and business that the Torah has in mind when referring to the Holy Land as Kana'an. A business venture will always begin with an investment. Investing on the face of it is something that runs counter to the investor's entire purpose. Now he has less money or no money at all. The only reason why the investor will engage in such a reckless act is because he knows that this temporary loss will hopefully yield a profit far surpassing the original investment. On a cosmic level, the entire creation is an act of investment. Oops, sorry, I lost my place. All right, investing, nope, sorry. God created a world contracting his presence to create a space which is very distant from godliness along with all the consequences that accompany this. God sent the soul, a godly being, down to this earth and there it is, subject to an experience which is anything but godliness and holiness. What can be the purpose of such a descent? It's an, it is an investment, the work of man in creation both with himself and with the world around him, will yield a level of good that never could have been yielded without the initial loss. How this is, is a discussion on its own. The important thing is to understand is that, the important thing to understand is that this constitutes the meaning, the entire project of the entire project we call creation. The meaning of creation at large was reflected in the particular land chosen by God for the Jewish people. The Torah is quite elaborate in its description of the low spiritual state in the land before the Jewish entry therein. It is reminding us that this spiritual poor and lost situation is the doing of a divine investment, the work of a kana'an. It is specifically the work of eliminating evil and elevating the material world that will yield a result far surpassing anything that could have been achieved without it. In these terms, it means revealing how the purpose in the land of Kana'an was to yield Eretz Israel. All right, so pretty deep, pretty profound stuff this week. All right, last article I have for y'all. I really like this guy. This is a rabbi who has uh, ALS and he writes with his eyes. So it, this this guy is really uh very profound his wife has a uh, a talk a video or, or audio sermon basically uh, a testimony of uh, his uh, de uh, decline uh, health-wise and uh, he uh, yeah, oh it's powerful it'll it's it's really powerful and uh, so she actually has a website, I believe. Uh, let's see. Oh, it's on the Jewish Latin Princess website. Uh, Dina Hurwitz, A Story of Hope and Inspiration. And you can read about her there. And I think it links to some video about her. But anyway, Dina Hurwitz, H-U-R-W-I-T-Z. Amazing uh, talk she gives. Uh, on uh, 
you can probably find it on YouTube, but I know it's on Chabad.org. But Dina Hurwitz and uh, Yitzi, short for Yitzhak, uh, he was a California um, shliach or uh, Chabad evangelist, basically. And um, there's a video called The Story Behind Yitzi's Song which uh, I haven't, I don't think I've seen this one, but I guess there's a song about him. So um, she has several videos. If you look up Dina Hurwitz, um, I think the one that I saw that I recommend is among others is uh, ALS took my husband, but not my faith. No, I think it's how to cope when life gets really challenging. And uh, anyway, it's, it's an amazing story. All right. Well, anyway, so uh, highly recommend reading that, especially if you're going through something. It can really help you with some tools on uh, how to cope emotionally, mentally, and even physically, just getting from one day to the next, improving in our circumstances that obviously life can be really hard and it's important to have people that support you, that understand your situation, as well as having a daily routine and locking into that and helping that to be a spiral staircase, if you will, to propel you upward, uh, even in spite of, or you could look at it because of the struggles, challenges, and suffering you may be going through. All right, so from Rabbi Yitzhi Hurwitz, this article is titled, The Dove Always Finds Its Way Home. In the Haftarah for Vayetze, God rebukes the ten northern tribes, a.k.a. Ephraim, after the tribe who ruled the other nine nor northern tribes, for wavering and returning to God. He rebukes them for worshiping idols, for crooked business dealings, for claiming in arrogance that God is unaware of their actions, and for being deceitful. Ultimately, God won't let them succeed in their wickedness. And this is all alluding to Levan the Aramean, Yaakov's uncle and father-in-law, who in our parsha swindled him every which way. Yet, for all Levan's trickery and cunning, God does not allow him to succeed. The Haftarah speaks of Yaakov's descent to Haran and how he worked to get his wives. And now, this is also the former residence of Abraham's family where Jacob met and married his wives and lived for 20 years. Um, so just, uh, I believe that's where Rivka, yeah, of course, uh, that's where Rivka came from. That's where Abraham sent Eliezer, his servant, to get Rivka to be a wife for Isaac. Uh, and, you know, it's all a big connection, you know, uh, nothing new under the sun, like it says in Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, that... Uh, now we have Jacob going back himself to find a bride because his mother instructed him to do what Abraham did for, for Isaac, his father. The Haftarah speaks of Jacob's descent to Quran, how he worked to get his wives, who are mentioned in our parasha. Sprinkled throughout the Haftarah are the exodus from Egypt, which we read about earlier. Uh, I believe it's verse 11, 11, chapter 11, verse 11. Allusions to our future redemption, excuse me, and assurances that if we follow on God's path, Trusting in him, keeping the Torah and mitzvot, he will help us succeed. So, similarly, in the parsha, Yaakov, with God's help, succeeds in Haran, coming out with great wealth and a beautiful family. What lessons are hidden here for us? What are we meant to take away from the Haftarah and the parsha? The story of Yaakov going down to Haran is the story of the Jewish people going into exile 
or Israel going into exile and the key to the future redemption. It is also the story of the neshama, the soul coming into the body. There are two, now that's the second time we heard that. We heard that in the last article also. There are two types of exile. The first is an exile of plenty where we are free and lack nothing. However, because of this abundance, we follow our desires following lower, falling lower and lower. When this happens, our holy energy, which is meant to nourish the good and holy forces in the world, end up feeding and energizing the negative forces. This is symbolized by the Assyrian exile in which we enjoyed relative freedom. Then there is the exile of suffering in which we feel stuck, unable to get out and do the simplest of things. Because of the suffering and oppression, our thoughts and abilities become constricted and obstructed. In other words, we are stuck in our tsuris. This is symbolized, tsuris is problems. This is symbolized by the exile in Mitzrayim, which means constraints, and where we were in servitude. To this, the Haftarah says that when Moshiach comes, he will roar like a lion. They will hurry like a bird from Egypt and like a dove from Assyria. And I will settle them in their homes, says God. What in that is from Hoshea 10, 11, verse 10 through 11, which we read earlier. What is the lion's roar? That is the sound of the shofar that God will sound when Mashiach comes. Mashiach. Uh, why does he use the metaphor of a bird and a dove? Because no matter how far away they stray from their nest, these birds always find their way back home. The same is true about the Jewish people. No matter which kind of exile or how far we stray, we will always find our way back home. Now, the Haftarah says, like a merchant who has deceitful scales in his hand, this is the Neshama, Hoshea 12, verse 8, which, when it was above, was filled with silver and gold, when it was in heaven, which means love and awe of God. But like a merchant who spends all his silver and gold just to make a profit, so is the Neshama willing to give up everything, descend to this lowly world, enter the body, and do everything to affect the body, just for the gain it will attain through the mitzvot that the body will do. This is the meaning of the verse in Tehillim. To me, the Torah of your lips is better than thousands of gold and silver. Psalm 119.72. Let me read that again. To me, the Torah of your lips is better than thousands of gold and silver. Psalm 119, verse 72. The Torah uttered by the lips down in this physical world is more valuable to the Neshama than all the love and awe it experienced while it, is, it was still in heaven. This is a testament to how precious and valuable even the smallest mitzvah we do is to our Neshama and by extension to God. May we each get closer to God through Teshuvah and may our precious mitzvah finally tip the scales and usher in the redemption. May it happen soon and speedily and in our days. So I'm going to finish with a reading, which uh, I try to do weekly uh, from Galatians 4. And I'm just going to read uh, the, the last part of the, the chapter here. Uh, just to introduce it, I'll read the first couple verses. So Rob Schul says, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, and you know, in some areas we we're still underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the Torah, to redeem those under the Torah 
that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Now, it's talking about being a slave to sin. And we see that throughout the Gospels and the Epistles. And uh, you're either a, a servant or a slave to God or a servant or a slave to Hasatan and darkness. All right. So let me just jump to the end here. Uh, chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the Torah, are you not aware of what the Torah says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. Now, let me make something really clear here. This point is missed over and over by Christians and by Jews and by Messianic Jews. What Paul, what Rav Shul was talking about here is being under the Torah for the purpose of salvation. If you read the book of Galatians slowly enough and compare it with his other letters and the entire New Testament, you will see he is not talking about living without Torah. If you live without Torah, you have no framework. You have, what do you have? You have a vacuum. You have your own made-up religion or the made-up religion of whatever church you go to that doesn't obey the Torah, doesn't keep the Shabbat, doesn't keep kosher, doesn't keep any of the biblical festivals that say they're going to go on forever in Leviticus 23, for instance, just to name a few. Or the fact that we're going to have uh, festivals, Shabbat and festivals, which we see in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, Zechariah uh, chapter 14. So um, understand he is talking about not observing the Torah for salvation. That's his focus here is because there was a huge issue at that time. Do we have to tell, tell the Gentiles that they have to become converts and obey the Torah in order to be saved? And the answer was no, not for salvation. But that doesn't mean you just go do whatever you want. You're still going to learn the Torah, like it says in Acts 15 and Acts 22, um, weekly when you come for Shabbat and all the festivals. All right. So verse 24, these things are being taken figuratively. The woman, the women represent two covenants. They do not conflict, by the way. They're one on top of the other. They're, they're, uh, they weren't created simultaneously, but one builds on the previous one. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be servants. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Yerushalayim because she is in slavery with her children. Okay, so what does that mean? Slavery with her children. Okay, there's blindness to Yeshua being the Messiah for one, and there's still people who you and I probably could name people that we know that believe that obedience to the Torah, most likely they're Jewish, but, you know, that, that tends to be the predominant uh, belief in Judaism is that there is uh, an adherence to Torah will attain salvation. Okay. It will not, it will only point you to Yeshua being the Messiah, but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother for it is written. Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now that's from Isaiah 54, verse 1. 
Now, you brothers and sisters like Yitzhak are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. In other words, obedience to the Torah is not going to attain you salvation. The laws of the earth are not going to attain salvation. Grace is not an earthly concept. It's a heavenly concept. Uh, teshuvah, repentance, is not an earthly concept. It's a heavenly concept. So obeying the black and white rules of the Torah or of the world, for that matter, are a framework we have to live within, but they're not going to attain freedom. They're not going to attain salvation. Now, you know, was Ishmael and Hagar, his mother, mistreated or are they unequal? No, they, Abraham went on to marry her. She was named Keturah. And according to Jewish tradition, he went on to marry her. And Ishmael was given 12 tribes. I mean, he was given a lot. And that's been, uh, you know, misrepresented in the sense that the Arabs that came from Ishmael want Jerusalem and want all of Israel. Uh, that wasn't given to them. They were given plenty of other land, as you can see even in modern day. I mean, I think there are 12 Middle Eastern countries that surround Israel, and yet they won't leave her alone. But anyway, uh, political commentary for another time, maybe another podcast. Uh, but thank you for listening in. We invite you to make Yeshua the Lord of your life and ask him to permeate and invade your life with salvation by the blood of his sacrifice, his offering once and for all. And may you find salvation in the hands of the God of Israel and his Messiah, Yeshua. Shalom and have a blessed day and week.